Amalek is a theme that courses through Purim. We talked about Amalek in a different context last week, the Mitzvah of Zachor. And the association that we make of Amalek to Purim, which both in the Gemara justifies the inclusion of Megillat Esther and Tanakh as it being uh, an example of the war with Amalek, and the timing of reading Parshat Zachor now as the Shabbat before Purim, is anchored in the idea that Haman is a member of Amalek. And it really raises a, a larger question, which I'm going I'm to touch on briefly, which is characters in Tanakh who in later history develop almost an exaggerated personality. I could add, uh, I could uh, include Asav in that, uh, category. I could Levan, add Lavan into that category, Bilam in that category, uh, Doeg into that category, um, Achitofel into that category. There's all sorts of people. Most of them, by the way, you notice are, are not people that we like. Um, interesting enough, Yishmael does not get the, get that, get nailed that way. Um, and it's the post Mikra development or even within Mikra development of a person as a caricature. So that Esav, the human being in Sefer Breshit, then becomes uh, almost one-dimensional by the time you get to Sefer Ovadia, and certainly by the time you get to uh, to um, the Midrashim about Esav. Uh, but I want to focus here on Amalek, but specifically on Haman, and how Haman develops. So we have two bridges to cross. One bridge to cross is from Amalek to Haman, and the other is from Haman and the Megillah to Haman and the Midrash. All right, but we're going to, they're going to end up kind of getting looped together, as you'll see. Um, the, the problem, I'm going to point the problem out right away, but we are told at the first instant that we encounter Amalek, which is in Sefer Shmot at the end of Parsha B'Shalach, you have here two of the Psukim, we're going to read them tomorrow's Kriyat Torah. After Yoshua repels the attack of Amalek, doesn't defeat them, but repels them, God speaks to Moshe and says, So this is going to be permanent. I'm not going to say it twice. I will indeed wipe out the memory of Amalek. Anything left of Amalek, I will wipe them out. Now, that sounds like God is promising, and he is, that he is going to get rid of Amalek. Okay. And names it, God is my banner. And then he explains what he means by that. He's taking an oath that God is going to war against Amalek from generation to generation, which is a way of saying forever. And we have a conundrum in these psukim, because on the one hand, God says he's going to wipe out Amalek. On the other hand, there's going to be a war against Amalek from generation to generation. And indeed, a little bit later on in history, well, not a little bit, but a bit later in history, we actually find out that God has fulfilled his promise. All right, so let's roll it through Baal for a moment. We're going to go back to the Haftarah that we read this past Shabbat and several other passages. Amalek as a group of tribes, there are a bunch of, um, just like Midian, a bunch of Bedouin tribes that are, that are subsets of Amalek. One of those subgroups 
is targeted for destruction by Hashem, and that's the story of Shmuel and Shaul and Agag. And um, Shaul wipes out that entire group, and all that's left is the animals, and that's why there's a big problem. But in the meantime, Shaul does that. However, at no point does Shmuel say, now go after the rest of the Amalekim, all the other tribes around. It's only that particular group. And as a matter of fact, at the end of Shmuel Aleph, when David and his men go up to uh, to Gilboa and leave, foolishly, leave their women and children and animals alone, Amalek, another group of Amalekim come, as well after the Shaul story, another group of Amalekim st- come and and grab all of the women, children, and animals and take them as prisoners of war, captivity. And David then gets his men together and they go and they fight and they get them back. And when they get them back, they fight against Amalek simply to get the, the, the families back and the Amalekim run away. David doesn't chase. Which means there doesn't seem to be really an impulsion to try to really actually go to war against Amalek. It's just when there's a need for it. We then... Roll ahead in history, and we take a look at source two, which is from Divrei Hayamim Aleph at the end of Perak Dalad. Divrei Hayamim Aleph Perak Dalad is the genealogy of Shimon. And what happens to Shevet Shimon? After we enter the land, Shevet Shimon settles among the cities of Yehuda. They have their own cities within the tribe of the Arab Yehuda. They fight with Yehuda. They're like a subset of Yehuda. And at a later point in Divrei Hayamim, we don't hear about this in Sefer Malachim, at a later point, Shevet Shimon migrates east to Jordan, and they settle in the area of Edom, which, of course, is associated with Esau. And, of course, Amalek is Esau's grandson. And the text then tells us that Evidently, Amalekim had been hurt and had run away, and they had fled to this place, and Shimon wiped out the very last Amaleki, which means, as of the year 700 B.C.E., there's nobody left from Amalek in the world. Which, of course, raises the question higher, which is, A, how do we have an ongoing war with Amalek from generation to generation when God did what he said he's going to do? He wiped them out. They're finished. And on a more local point, how can we identify Haman as a member of Amalek when 300 years earlier, the last 20 years earlier, the last Amalek he was wiped out? How does that happen? So I want to point to what it will seem like a side issue. We're going to bring it back in. which is a very famous Tosefta in Masachet Yadayim. It's a famous Tosefta because it's quoted in the famous story in the Bavli, but it's a, it's a critical Tosefta because, as you know, in the Torah, we have all sorts of nations that have particular halachot. We talked about this last week. We have all sorts of nations that have particular halachot associated with them. Amoni and cannot marry in. Mitzri and Adomi can only marry in after two generations. The seven nations were obligated to go to war against. And here's the, here's the, uh, the Tosef. The Boba Yom is the story about what happened on the day that Rabbi Lezben Azariah was inaugurated as the head of the yeshiva in Yavna. Boba Yom, Amad Yehuda Ger Amoni Lifnehem. So this particular guy was a convert from the area of Amon and evidently a lineage of Amon. He came to, the, to Yavna. He converted to Judaism. And he said, can I marry a Jewish girl? Gamliel said, no. Now, this is, by the way, just a background. Gamliel had been ousted from his position, if you recall that story. And, um, and, uh, and Rebbe Lezim Azar had been put in his place. 
And now Megamliel came to participate as a regular Chacham in the proceedings, not as the head of the Beit Din. And of course, his opposite number throughout is Rabbi Yoshua. That's the reason he got into trouble, because he had been, had been kind of lording himself over Rabbi Yoshua. And Gamliel said, you're not allowed to marry a Jewish girl. You're Amoni. Amarlo Rabbi Yeshua, Mutarata Rabbi Yeshua disagreed and said, you may marry a Jewish girl. So now, the poor guy is out of the picture. It's Megamliel versus Rabbi Yeshua. Amar Gamliel, Hakatub Amoni Adonai. He said, there's a pasuk that says, an Amoni is not allowed to marry a Jewish girl. Amar Yeshua, Chi Amon Moab, Mkumani He said, Are this, is this really Amon Moab? The guy's in Jordan. So who says he's an Amoni? And then he says this line, a critical line, Kfar Amal Allah Sancheriv Ubilbel Kol Almog. Sancheriv, that's the Assyrian emperor from the 8th century BCE, came and mixed up all the nations. Shenemari quotes a pasuk in Right? Which means that the people living in Ammon are not Ammonim, the people living in Moab are not Moabim, the people in Mitzrayim are not Mitzrayim, the living in Adom are not Edomim. Nobody is who they used to be, because the population transfer meant the people living here are people who came from somewhere else. It's kind of like America. Nobody's from here. Nobody's from somewhere else. And, and besides that, the population transfer also created a lack of genealogical purity because there was a lot of intermarriage. And as a result of that, there's no more nations. So he said, the, the guy could be from Jordan. He could be from the city of Ammon. He's not an Ammoni, and therefore he can marry a Jewish girl. And that was the final result of that. And the Rambam rules this way right here. And again, as the Rambam we saw last week in a different context, the Rambam rules, there's a mitzvah to destroy the seven nations, et cetera, et cetera. And then, Ukvar Abad Zikram, I highlighted it. We no longer know who they are. And then he says, and this is the point I want to get to, you're supposed to destroy any commemoration, any memory of Amalek. Shnei quotes the Pasuk. And there's a mitzvah to always remember, and that's, of course, the problem. Supposed to wipe them out, you're supposed to remember their evil behavior, etc. We saw this last week, but notice what he does not say at the end of the Salacha. He does not say, We don't know who they are anymore. Which means the Rambam, and this is the way that our Salvechik's father explained it, the Rambam sees Amalek not as being a genealogical group, but rather an ideological group. And therefore, he says, there's no, there's no issue of being, of, are you really a descendant of Amalek? Which would then explain how we are willing to call Haman Amalek. Because Haman is an ideological descendant of Amalek. Okay, very good. And that's not getting us much further than when we were last week. But my question is, how did we make that leap? How did we get to the point of saying that Amalek doesn't need to be a genealogical descendant of uh, Esau's grandson, but can be anybody who adopts that approach, that strategy, that unbridled hatred for the Jewish people with a, a stratagem of attacking the weak, etc. How do we get that? So um, I want to start from the very beginning here. Chachamim look at these psukim, and I believe that they see the internal paradox. God says, I'm going to wipe out Amalek, and yet there's a war with Amalek forever. Which means that Amalek must be something that can outlive the people of Amalek. And that's how they, how they see it. So that, that's bridge number one. Bridge number one, taking us from Amalek to Haman. 
Haman is a person who adopts the approach that Amalek took, therefore we call him Amalek. I'm going to add one more piece to that puzzle with a question. When was Megillat Esther written? So we assume Megillat Esther was written pretty close to the event. It's recording the event as it goes along. But when was Megillat Esther finally published? Meaning, when was the final version of Megillat Esther done? So if you look at Pasuk um, 5 on the page, Source 5 on the page, you will see that it seems to have been completed at least two generations later. The text tells us, first of all, that the Jews now were describing like an eyewitness thing. This is not the year of the event. This is a year or two or more later. The Jews celebrate the 14th and the 15th of, in the unwalled cities, the Jews celebrate the 14th of Adar, Mishloach Manot, Ishtarei, etc. And later on in that parak, it says, These days have been celebrated and commemorated for generations. Which means that the final addition, addition to the Megillah takes place a while later. Which means, by the way, that there's also room to edit the text. And by the way, edited texts in Tanakh are something we've talked about a lot. That, the, that Moshe Rabbeinu goes back and edits texts in Breshit and Shemot to reflect the understanding of the generation that he's writing for, which is at the end before he dies. So take a look at, at the introduction of Haman. What's Haman called? Now, what does Hagagi mean? So some people think Hagagi is, it happens to be the name of a Persian tribe that Haman's part of, and it's convenient that it happens to have the same name as the Amalekite king. I don't think we need to go that far. We can go very simply that once the story of Haman is there, and Haman is quite dead, and we can celebrate the victory over him, we identify him as being an Amaleki, so we give him a name of somebody who we knew from Amalek, Agag. Is he, is he really a descendant of Agag? The king can't be, because they were all wiped out, not leaving anybody behind. And so Agagi seems to be like an editorial piece on here, all right, just like Amman is called later Tzorer HaYudim, the enemy of the Jews. That's not his business card, doesn't say that. That's what we call him when, in, in the text. Okay. So that's bridge one, is taking us from Amalek to Haman. I want to ask you, when you see Haman in the Midrash, when you see Haman in popular folklore, when you see Haman the way that he is presented to us when we were little kids, or even afterwards, what is he, how is he presented? He's presented as a virulent, anti-Jewish person, hates Jews with every fiber of his soul. By the way, who is Haman in the Megillah? In the Megillah, Haman does not demonstrate any hatred for Jews. He demonstrates hatred for Mordechai, and by extension, Mordechai's people. But the Midrash turns him into this virulent anti-Semite, an anachronistic term. And watch how the Midrash does it here, and then we're going to pick it up from there. Um, one of many uh, examples. At the beginning of Sefer Amos, the first two chapter, the first chapter and a half of Amos is a series of oracles against the nations. An oracle against Syria. They've done three terrible things, but the fourth one broke the camel's back. And here's what the fourth thing is. And for each one of them, that pattern, three and four. 
When it comes to Edom, Edom is Esav. Source 8. He chased his brother. Who's his brother? We are. Edom is Esav. We are the brother, Yaakov. He chased his brother with the sword. He corrupted his own compassion. And he kept his anger burning forever. It's a poetic way of saying the same thing. Mishnah Rebbe Leazar says, In other words, the hatred that Haman has for us is just another example of the hatred of Esau for Yaakov. The hatred of Amalek for Yisrael. It's just another one in line. Okay, so that kind of finishes off that particular piece. But now I want to do the second bridge, which is Haman in the Megillah and Haman in the Midrash which is reflected in the last statement that Haman is not somebody whose ego has been punctured, who hates Mordechai, and by extension Mordechai's people, but it's somebody who really has it in for the Jews. Let's take a look at it. The, and we'll see what happens in the Midrash. I'm going to preface it by asking the following question. What was the single most popular Haman outfit, Haman disguise, in Munich in, 19, in, in Hamburg, sorry, in 1938? What do you think? Was I the, assume Hitler. What? I assume Hitler. Yeah, a little mustache. And I'll remind you, because I, I think almost here, everybody here is old enough to remember this. What was the single most popular Haman costume, as it were, in 1991? If you recall, the scuds stopped falling airport. So is, is this the thing against mustaches? So what? So what was the single most common? Uh, Hussein. It was Hussein. In other words, what happens is Haman looks like the current enemy. Now, where does that come from? So I just want to point out to you here: when Haman in the Megillah speaks with Achashverosh about the people that he wants to hurt. By the way, very look very carefully. He never says Jews. Never says kill <clears throat> in the text, right? This is what he says. There's one nation that's spread out throughout your kingdom. Their practices are different than everybody else's. They don't do the king's practices. It's not worth it for the king to leave them be. Again, very vague. And the king, in his foolishness, agrees to let Haman do whatever he wants to these people. But watch what the Midrash says about this. And we're going to look at increasing development in the Midrash. The Midrash in the Bavli version says as follows. Nobody knew how to speak Lashon Hara as well as Haman. So in this conversation, in the Midrash, Haman and Achatzeresh both want to kill the Jews. It's clear kill, it's clear Jews. Haman says to Ahasuerus, let's kill him. I'm afraid of their God. That he doesn't do to me what he did to the previous guys who tried to hurt his people. Amarlo, now look at the first word, yeshno, he reads it as yashnu. Not yeshno there is, but yashnu, they've slept. They're sleeping, they're not observant anymore. But they have some rabbis. 
They are one nation, which means if the people aren't observant, the rabbis aren't saved because they're all responsible for each other. Maybe you think I'm going to create a big gap, meaning wiping out a whole people will take out a whole area and there'll be a big empty area. The next line that he says is they're spread out. Maybe you think that we get some benefit from them. We don't get benefit. He says, Miforad. Now, Miforad means separated, but it hints to Preda. Preda is a mule. A mule doesn't, doesn't reproduce. They don't reproduce. Maybe there's one whole province where they are. It says, They're everywhere. Now, I'll say this carefully. Their practices are different than everybody else. That's what the Haman says in the Megillah. What's the drush They won't eat our food. They won't marry our daughters. And they won't let their daughters marry us. They don't do the king's practices. All year, they say, You know what Shahipahi is? Shabbat Hayom, Pesach Hayom. I can't work, it's a Jewish holiday. Very bizarre thing. That Haman in the Midrash is complaining to Achashverosh that the Jews are essentially indolent and lazy. It's not worth it for the king to leave them be. Why? They eat and they drink and they make fun of the king. Why? If one of them is drinking wine and a fly falls in, he throws the fly out and drinks the cup. But if you, the king, would touch their cup, he'll throw it in the ground, he won't drink it. Right? That's Haman take one in the Midrash. Where did this come from? Very strange. I'm going to show you now acceleration. In Esther Rabbah, the Midrash Eretz Israeli, which is later than the Babli, same idea. Yeshno Amachad, but now the drush is not Yeshno like Yashnu, they slept, but rather Yeshno as in Shinehon Ravervin, Yeshno from Shinaim. They have big teeth. Sheochlin Vishotin, they eat and drink. Every time they have a party and they call it some religious holiday. They're depleting the economic base of the kingdom. Now, watch what he does. I love this because every seven days they have a Shabbat. Every 30 days they have Rosh Chodesh. Evidently, at the time of this Midrash, Rosh Chodesh was celebrated as a party. Right? They have Rosh Chodesh, and Sukkot. Amarlo says that's how they're commanded. Now watch what Haman. This is just so mind-boggling. Amarlo Haman. If they kept their holidays and our holidays, I wouldn't mind. That's okay. They can keep Sukkot, but they should also keep our holidays. By the way, our holidays. He's a Persian in the fifth century BCE. They degrade your holidays. They don't keep Kalendas or Saturnalia. By the way, Kalendas and Saturnalia are Roman pagan holidays. So why is Haman, a 5th century BCE Persian advisor, angry and sharing with the king his anger that the Jews don't keep Roman pagan holidays? 
We'll get to that, but the end of this Midrash is too delightful to leave alone. You know that famous story where Hitler, Machmo, went to a soothsayer in the mid-30s and said, because he, he believed in a lot of this stuff, he said, when am I going to die? She looked in a crystal ball and she said, you're going to die on a Jewish holiday. He said, which one, which one? He said, doesn't matter. Any day, any day you die, will be a Jewish holiday. All right, that comes from this Midrash. Watch. So God said to Haman, as it were, Rasha, you are casting aspersions against their holidays. I'm going to kill you in front of them. And they're going to add a holiday over your death. You're jealous about their holidays. You're going to be the source of another holiday. And that's Yimapurim. Beautiful. But what's really odd here is that the accusations against the Jews in this Midrash are accusations that you never hear. Accusations of laziness and indolence. You know, when you hear accusations of Jews, it's money-grubbing, it's pushy, it's controlling, whatever, you know, dual, dual, uh, dual uh, loyalty. But you don't hear this kind of thing. So Professor Josh Perman, many, many years ago, before he was professor, before he was at his doctorate, he wrote an article, it was before his doctorate, in, in Judaism. Magazine Judaism back in the 90s, uh, in which he pointed the following thing out. I did a little research and he pointed out that this accusation of indolence, which we don't hear today, was actually quite popular in the Roman era. Juvenile and his satyrs, one of his satires, satirizes the Jews and he satirizes the fact that we keep Shabbat as a reflection of. Uh, of laziness, right? Tacitus, right, said that the Jews were so happy with this laziness of Shabbat that they then made up a whole thing called Shemitah, because they just really liked the idea of taking time off. Now, what are we saying from here? That in this particular era, an accusation that was leveled against the Jews was that they're lazy. So the Midrash puts that in. What does that mean? So it's important to understand how Midrashim operate. Midrashim are not about the period they're commenting on. They are about the period in which they're composed. The Midrashim that reflect Moshe Rabbeinu and some Mitzri, the Midrashim are actually reflecting the rabbis against the current Romans or whoever they're, they're dealing with. And it's a way of taking the current situation, and putting it into a safe space to discuss it so the enemies don't really catch on. When we say Esav, wink, wink, we really mean the Roman centurion outside. But we say Esav. And second of all, it's a way of keeping the biblical characters alive. They become full-life creatures throughout our history. And this goes in both types, both Esav and Lavan and Haman, and also Avram Yitzhak and Yaakov and Moshe and Gidon and Yoshua and, uh, and Shimshon. Even the heroes take on a larger-than-life perspective. And just one quick example of that is many um, pre-state and early-in-the-state fighters saw themselves, and even took the playbook from, saw themselves in the cast of the famous uh, Shoftim and, uh, and military leaders like Yoshua that we have in Tanakh. 
parents who sacrifice their children, however you want to understand it, at the Rhine, in advance of the of the Crusaders, saw themselves as Abraham and their child as Yitzchak, and the scene is the Akedah. The, the Tanakh comes alive, and in that case, very sadly, comes alive through the development of this Midrashic tool, which essentially contemporizes the characters in Tanakh. And it does it by taking the current phrases, in this case, of the anti-Jewish feeling, and putting them into the mouth of the character in Tanakh. We've bridged two chasms in the Shi'ur, a chasm between the genealogical group of Amalek and the person of Haman and others like him that we refer to as Amalek, and more critically, the character of Haman in Tanakh and his approach with how he develops in the Midrash. He becomes an opportunity for us to express and portray the current hatred for Jews and the ugly um, cloth that it wears and the ugly voice that it, that, it, that it sounds and to put it into the mouth of Haman. I'll tell you two last things. One of them is that I understood this principle over 40 years ago. Over 40 years ago, I was on a visit with a friend to the, more of a mission with a friend to the future former Soviet Union. And we were in Leningrad, one of the most amazing experiences of my life. We're in Leningrad. We came to somebody's house who was a refusenik, uh, Isaac Kogan, a great guy, came to his house, and it was in May. So May, you can imagine, end of May in Leningrad. The sun doesn't set till after 11 at night. We came there at 6.30. It was like middle of the day. We came into the house, and we, he, he served some home, dinner. Everything in the house was homemade. He couldn't trust anything. He was careful about kashrut. It was homemade. We had a little dinner in his house. And then he started calling friends to come over. We were going to do a concert. The guys before us, by the way, had actually taught, given shiurim, and they were beaten up by the KGB so badly that we were warned just before going in, just do your music thing. So we were doing, doing to do a concert, and in between the songs, say Divrei Torah. So he started calling his friends to come over to the apartment. The apartment ended up being packed like sardines in this apartment. And while they were coming over, he showed me a, a picture album of the Purim that he had had at his house three months earlier. And this guy was a very, very tall, thin guy. And there was a picture of him leaning over, explaining Purim to a kid. And I, in my head, I heard the conversation. I heard him saying, and then Haman, and then under his breath saying, Brezhnev. And those two words, which were only in my head, gave me a whole understanding in all these Midrashim. When we talk about Haman in the Soviet Union of 1980, we're really talking about Brezhnev. When we talk about Haman in Tel Aviv in 1991, we openly say we mean Saddam Hussein. And you can take that interpretation however you wish to in March 2022. Um, There's certainly many people who would be very comfortable putting that back at the head of the Soviet Union or the wannabe. Um, I'm not going to go in that direction, but hopefully over the course of the last 35 minutes or so, we've gotten a better understanding on both how characters develop from Tanakh to Midrash and throughout the ages, and also the particular character of Haman, how he goes from Amalek, the genealogical, to Hamalek the ideological, to Amalek, the perennial, as he's developed in the Midrash.